You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 10.45 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. So I have a confession to make right off the, right off the bat here at the very beginning. This may surprise you, but um, pastors, if they're honest with you, uh, those who speak regularly in front of churches, uh, the holidays always make things a little difficult um, of knowing what to say because many of you have been in church for years. You've been in many Mother's Day services and Christmas services and Easter services. So uh, there is that, I don't know, that stress of like, okay, what, what am I going to say to mothers this year? What am I going to do to encourage them? And also the, the other part of any holiday that we, that we celebrate I know you know this, but there's always that hard side of, of holidays. Um, while many of you are celebrating, we'll be celebrating today, there will be a whole other segment of people who are, well, quite frankly, struggling today. Struggling for various reasons. Um, the thoughts of their mom who's passed on. Um, for those who've experienced miscarriages, uh, today is a whole different day for them. Who maybe God in his sovereign grace and whatever his purposes were, that they were never able to have children biologically. And today, for them, it can be a day of mourning just as much as it is a celebration. So when I, when I stand before you, I'll, I do want to celebrate because it is right and it is good that we do so. Because we're thankful for our moms and for all that they do behind the scenes. So I was trying to think of, of something, and I, I came across a really good article and, and the article is based on a question that was asked to some mothers who had been in church for a long time and many years and seen many Mother's Days. And they asked these mothers, said, what would, you, what would you have your pastor to say on Mother's Day? Because, quite frankly, he's struggling with knowing what to say. So what kind of advice would you give him? So I, I picked two accounts of these two mothers. The first mother, her account, and I'm going to read it for you. Uh, her children were already grown and had left the nest, and she was an empty nester. And uh, looking back over the years of Mother's Days, this is what she had to say, quote, So keenly aware of my own imperfections, I'll likely squirm on Mother's Day if praise is lauded on those of us who have raised or are raising children. For days, television ads will have featured glimpses of sacrificial mothers who ask for no more than a $4 greeting card as a thanks for squeezing out a kid, changing his diapers, preparing meals, and cleaning toilets. Though I have grudgingly done all those things, the more pressing awareness with which I live, and perhaps my children do as well, is of the areas where I fail. Like all mothers, I do the best I can. Sometimes I succeed. So while I'll probably bristle at any prayers blanketing me as a giver of noble, sacrificial mother love, I'll find myself included in the ones that ask God to help mothers love like he loved us, especially when we fail. Here's the bottom line. Mentioning Mother's Day in worship is just tricky. There's no formula. So perhaps we acknowledge that most families are messy. Can we just get an amen right there? Most families are messy, including mine. It's messy. She says that most families are messy. Or maybe we make a mental note to also mention birth moms on one of the other 51 Sundays of the year. Perhaps we simply admit that, that, that it's a difficult day for many. Or we acknowledge that God is keenly aware, keenly aware of all we hold in our hearts. On Mother's Day, the best we can do is keep it real. 
Then the next paragraph is from a 27-year-old mom uh, of three children under the age of five. Okay, so messy, yes, messy. So listen to what she has to say. She says, I need to hear that my role as mom to young children is hard, valuable kingdom work. Remind me that my unseen sacrifices and struggles are seen and valued by the Lord. I often feel undervalued, misunderstood, and looked over by a culture that applauds outward and visible contributions to society. So much of my work as a mother is hidden away in the unseen moments of grace with my children. As I bend over with my tremendously pregnant body to pick up the thousandth crayon, I receive no applause. When I respond patiently toward a tantrum-throwing toddler, no one says, way to keep your cool. I sacrifice and struggle because of love, and loving others is kingdom work. I also need to hear that my work as a mom is valued by the church. Tell me that my baby crying in the service is not an inconvenience or a distraction, but an important reminder that the kingdom belongs to childlike faith. Remind me that I don't need to be involved in a million ministry commitments when I have hands full nurturing several little souls. Encourage me to Encourage me to give the small, the ordinary, and the mundane things to God and watch him bless and multiply my efforts. Thank me for sowing seeds of love in the souls of the youngest among us. Finally, I need support. After having my first child, I felt like the desperate need for a mentor. I need someone who walked the path of motherhood before me to give me perspective and nurture my soul. I am blessed with a godly mother of my own and that I could go to for advice and support. But I know that every young mother does not have that. On Mother's Day, I would love to see a group of older women standing in the front of the service who were available and willing to take a younger mom under their wing. In my mind, a mentor is not someone who has all the answers or is a spiritual giant, but someone who is willing to listen and love. Because really, all a tired mom needs to keep going is a listening ear, a good cry, and maybe some banana bread. I think that is well stated. Can you imagine? Go ahead. Yeah, you can imagine. What would it be like? What would it be like for our young mothers to see a team of older moms down here who've been there, done that, who are willing to put their arm around you and help you walk the journey? I think that is a phenomenal idea. So I know you don't want to do this. So if you make me beg, I will. I'm not above it. I ask for all of our moms this morning, if they will, to please stand because we want to give you some applause. Please stand this morning, if you will. There we go. Now, there we go. (laughs) It is so good, so good to have you here this morning. And I know that some of you are guests, and we're especially glad to have you part of our service this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's ask the Lord's blessing upon these moms, all those that are watching online. Father, we realize, Father, that today is a special day. And, Father, it is right and good that we celebrate moms today. And so, Father, we thank you for all those in our service, all those watching online, all those who could not be here today, maybe live out of state. But, Father, we celebrate them as well. We thank you for their commitment. We thank you for their love and grace. We thank you, Father, for their willingness to work hard all hours of the night, around the clock, to do what needed to be done. We thank you, Father, for the way we see your love played out in the lives of the mothers around us. Father, thank you for my mom. I thank you for what she did for me. I thank you for the way you've brought healing into her life this past year. I'm thankful, Lord, that she's still with us. 
But Lord, I also know that every time we celebrate a holiday, no matter what it is, there's always that, that side of brokenness. So Father, this morning, for those moms this morning who, because of your sovereign grace and your per- perfect wisdom and your perfect will, Father, you never, you never gave them biological children. Maybe they went through several miscarriages. And Father, this morning and this day, it can be a hard day for them. And I, I just pray, Father, that you would bless them and encourage them and strengthen them, help them to know that they're not forgotten. And Father, for those women in our community who while they never had children biologically, they had many, many other children that they gave their life to. Maybe through a school, maybe through a, a community, through a church. But Father, they poured their life into kids. Father, we thank you for all those who have chosen the path of adoption or foster care. And Father, we pray for them and we pray, Lord, that you would encourage them and strengthen them. And Father, we celebrate them as well. Father, we thank you for the love that we've received from you and the love that we see lived out, that perfect, beautiful, sacrificial love that's lived out in the lives of our mothers. We know, Father, we don't live in an ideal world. And in this less than ideal world, there is brokenness and hurt and pain. And so, Father, we pray for your healing on the many that are struggling today. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gifts of our mothers that you've given to us and to this community. We praise you. We seek your face this morning as we continue to worship through your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to Revelation chapter 22. We have come to the end of the book, and we've come to the end of the Bible. The last chapter, last paragraphs. Uh, This is the 29th sermon, and all of us say, oh my goodness, has it been that many? Yeah, 29 sermons in the book of Revelation, and we're landing the plane today. We are thankful that you've kind of stuck with us. I'm thankful for all the email questions that I've got, all the questions that I've got at the side door, all the impromptu meetings where you've stopped by and we've sat in my office and talked for an hour or more about some of the things that that God has revealed to us in this great book. Let's pick it up in verse 6, and we want to read to the end to verse 21. Revelation 22, verse 6, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense or wages with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the ones who hear say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. 
If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. John's response, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Father, we pause again and we ask that you guide us in your word this morning. And Father, we thank you for the journey you've taken us on through this incredible book. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. And may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable unto you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And this closing paragraphs of this incredible book and the entire canon of Scripture, we have seven invitations by God himself to you. There are seven invitations in this final chapter of the Bible. And I want to share those invitations with you, hoping that, that you will respond. I believe that one of these invitations will resonate with where you are. I believe that one of these invitations is specifically set apart for you this morning with the hopes that you will respond to his good grace. On April 14th, 1912, the Titanic, the unsinkable ship, it sunk in the cold northern Pacific or northern Atlantic waters. This ship was claimed to be that even God could not sink the ship. Well, they decided to speed the ship up and kind of test out the engines. This ship was an incredible feat of engineering, and, and the world marveled at the Titanic. So they speed the ship up, and unbeknowing, they didn't realize that there is a glacier sticking out of the water. And, of course, you know the story. You've read the book. You've seen the movie. It rips a hole in the side of the hull of this unsinkable ship. There were 1,500 people on board. It was always shocked me is the number of how many people survived. This great feat of engineering where this ship had been designed to surpass all other ship designs, not only in its power, its performance, its, uh, well, its attributes, its characteristics, the beauty of what was on in the inside of that ship, it had also been designed with a great amount of detail in the amount of safety that went into the ship. They, they made sure that other disasters that had happened at sea where there were not enough lifeboats for the people to be able to survive this ship of 1,500 people had enough lifeboats that 1,178 people that were on that ship could find solace in a lifeboat in case something went wrong. So of the 1,500 people, only, only 711 people survived this disaster. And that begs a question. Why is it that we didn't have at least 1,100, 1,178, all of the boat's feel. What happened in that moment? Did the, did the ship sink so fast that they didn't have enough time to get into the lifeboats, get into the water, and get away from the ship? Well, you know the answer to that question. That's not the case. After the hull was torn, the, the boat was back afloat for many, many hours before it finally sunk to the bottom of, of the Atlantic. So why is it that all of these lifeboats that got deployed, why is it that they were not full? There's two reasons, and you need to know what those two reasons were. As these lifeboats were being filled, some of these lifeboats would hold 65 people. The first lifeboat that was deployed at the early stages of the Titanic ship sinking, that lifeboat would hold 65 people. Do you know how many people were in that first lifeboat? Only 28. And as you look at all the other lifeboats that were, that were deployed, there were only two that were filled to capacity. The rest of them had anywhere from 14 
to 35 people in a boat that was designed to hold 65. So why is it that the, the ship that is going down, why is it that the majority, the vast majority of the people are on that boat rather than in the lifeboats? Two reasons. The number one reason was that the vast majority of the people on the boat didn't believe it was sinking. Now, at that very moment, there is a, a tear in the hull of the ship that's below water. You can't see it. And in, in the belly of that boat, in the belly of that ship, there are already people who have died and, and, and people who have drowned in the belly of that boat. The people up on the top decks had no idea. The boat's still afloat. We don't seem to see any water. So who says the ship is actually sinking? So they actively refused to get in the only thing that would save their life. Now, there would come a point where it would settle in really quickly that the ship is actually sinking. But by that point, all the lifeboats were gone. There's a second reason that these boats didn't get filled. The second reason was is that when people were looking at these boats hanging on the side of the ship that were supposed to hold 65 people, those folks on the boat didn't trust the engineering that went into those lifeboats, and they didn't believe that that boat could hold 65 people without breaking in two and dropping them in the ocean. So they didn't get in. They did not trust the engineering that went into this marvelous ship. So there's two reasons. Number one, they just didn't believe there was a problem. Number two, they had no faith to get in the boat. Now, as we've walked all through this book of Revelation, starting all the way back before Christmas, I've said to you over and over again, there are only two groups of people in the world, only two. There are those who put their faith in Christ and those who have not. There are not many ways to, to heaven. There are not many ways to utopia. There are not many. There is not this idea that all religions lead to utopia. There is only one way that you will be spared the judgment we've been talking about now for weeks, only one. And it's through Jesus Christ, who died publicly on a cross, rose three days later. That is it. There is no other way. And so when we look at the Titanic, there were two reasons people refused. They refused because they didn't believe that anything was bad was going to happen. They believed that life was just going to continue as it is. Over these last many weeks, there have been people sitting right here in these two services that God has been dealing with their heart. It was physically, I could see it on your face. And they still haven't responded. And for some of them, they're, they're believing that their life, they've got, a, they, they got a bank account with money in, they have a new car, they have a nice house, they've got a good job. Why do I need to surrender my life to something else? My life is going pretty well right now. They're just like the ones who are on the Titanic. Why do I need to get in a lifeboat? As a matter of fact, if you remember in the movie, and this was a historically or a historic reality, the, the band was playing music on the deck of a sinking ship. And a vast majority of the people didn't think there was anything wrong. The other reason that those folks drowned is they didn't get in the boat. They didn't trust that that boat could save them. See, down through my years of ministry and down through my years of following Jesus, I found many people who just didn't believe that Jesus is real, that Jesus actually died, that Jesus could actually forgive them of what they've done. For some of you, you will not surrender your life to Christ because you constantly look back at the things you've done, the mistakes you've made. You look at Jesus and you go, there's no way that Jesus can forgive me of what I've done. You have no idea that the mistakes I've made. 
Or they look, they look at Jesus and they've, they maybe have heard about him their whole life or maybe they've only heard about him once and they think that Jesus is just something to do with Christmas, something to do with Easter, that he's not real, that the whole thing's a big story, a big fable. So they just live, them, live their life for themselves. And they're no different than the one standing on the deck of that ship who either rejected the boat or believed there was no problem. Here in the closing chapters of the entire canon of Scripture, when I say canon, what I'm talking about, Genesis to Revelation, the entire revelation of God right here. In the closing chapters, what is the final words that God has for you? After it's all been said and it's all been done and all, all the history of Israel and, and the history of the New Testament church and, and all that Jesus did and all that Paul and the apostles did, what is the final word that God has to you? Well, it's seven invitations. Seven invites for you to respond to. Let's look at the first one. Then the, the verse, uh, verse six, I'm sorry. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. The first invitation that God issues to you this morning is to trust that his word is true. To trust that this revelation of himself is trustworthy and true. The reason that this book is trustworthy and true is because the one who gave it to us is trustworthy and true. This phrase has been used, we've looked at it several times as we walk through this book, that the very character of God is one such that, that he cannot lie, he cannot, he cannot bring confusion into your life, that's not who he is. He has perfectly revealed not only his plan, but who he is. He has revealed the purpose for your life. He has revealed all of that. And what he asks from you is to simply believe. Now, I have, I have encountered people down through the years who will say to me, well, this is nothing more than a book. It's just like any other book, any other religious book. It's, it's just the same. So what makes this book any better than any other book filled with religious sayings? Well, that's a very good question. I wish I had a whole other 45 minutes to get into it, but let me just say this. That everywhere within this book, what I find is consistency. What I find is that not only is it true internally, but it's true externally. That everything that it says about the world in which we live, I found it to be true. I have spent my entire life from age 16 and then for the last 18 years in vocational ministry studying and reading this book. And here is the conclusion that I have come to. After spending all these years reading this book and studying this book in the original languages behind the English translation that you have, I have spent hours, and I'm not bragging on myself, I'm just simply saying that I have spent time in this, and I can tell you without any shadow of a doubt that I believe every single word cover to cover. That I believe that what it says about reality, well, corresponds to reality. That what it says about the creator who spoke the world into existence, that God, in fact, did do that. And, and when the Bible says, when Jesus himself says, I am the only way, I believe that he meant that he is the only way to salvation. I believe it. I believe that, that no matter where you look, no matter where you study, no matter where you read, you're going to find that God is honest, trustworthy, and true. Not only in the life of this book, in the, but in the life of his son, the perfect revelation of God. The first invitation is to trust, but not only trust, but to obey. Notice this, verse 7. He says, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I told you, I think it was the first sermon in Revelation. Revelation 1, when we started out, I told you on that day that, that as we walk through this book, if, if all we accomplished here is that you learn a few new things about what the book says, 
You learn a few, a few things you hadn't realized before. You learn a few new things about Jesus, maybe a few new things about the end times. If you learn a few new things, if that's all we accomplish in 29 weeks of being together, walking through this book, if all we accomplish is for you to learn a few more facts, can I just say clearly as I can, we have failed. This book that we have walked through in all books of the Bible has as its goal life change from the inside out. If your heart has not been impacted, if your heart has not been changed, if you have not come to a place where not only you trust the word deeper, but not only you're willing to put that to work in the kingdom, then all I have done is shared some facts. You've acquired some new facts, but no life change has happened. The first invitation is to trust and obey the word. The second invitation comes in verse 8, and it's the invitation to worship. Look at verse 8. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Now, John makes a pretty big error here. And I, I love the fact that, now remember, John, he's a 90-plus-year-old man. He was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He was the one that went all the way to the cross with Jesus. The Bible, John describes himself as the beloved of Christ. He, he and Jesus had a, a close relationship. He was part of the inner three of the 12 disciples. So, so John is 90-plus years old. He's, he's been put on a prison. It's actually an island, but it's a prison. He can't get off of it. He's there under Roman authority, and, and he, is, he is an old man. He has nothing but the clothes on his back, and he is forced to work all day long for the Romans on the island of Patmos. But John makes a pretty big mistake here, and I appreciate the fact that John included this. Wouldn't it, been, wouldn't it have made sense for John to just leave this part out? But he doesn't. John is so overwhelmed with all that he's seen, all that he's experienced. John has this, this obvious desire to fall down and just worship. But the problem in this moment is he's misdirecting his worship towards something less than God. In that moment, John falls on his face before this powerful angel, and no doubt this angel that has been speaking to John is powerful. It's, it's something to behold. And in that moment, John is so called up in worship, he falls down at the angel and worships the angel. And the angel says, stop. John, don't worship me. You worship God. He says, I am a light servant. I'm a servant, just like you are, John. So I don't deserve worship. God deserves your worship. Now, this brings to bear something we have wrestled with all through this book. In, in those moments of, of judgment, that God's pouring out judgment, we see the world turn to, a, to an antichrist and, and follow him as though he's God. And, and I told you that our hearts are designed by God. When we are conceived in our mother's womb, we are designed to worship. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon says that, that we have eternity built in our heart. And so we will seek in our life, even those who are atheists in their belief, they still seek something that will fulfill their life. It may be a job, it may be a career, it may be a PhD, but we're all looking for something to give meaning to our life. Well, guess what that is? That was created by God on the inside of you so that you would seek him out. But what John is bringing our attention to here is how easy it is to misdirect our worship away from the God who created us to something less than. Could it be that, could it be that your average everyday churchgoer, could it be that, that while we're here together that we sing the songs and maybe we raise our hand and we join in in prayer and 
We listened to this guy on the stage rant and rave for about 40 minutes. And, and could it be that we, that we walk out of here and that something else actually has our heart rather than the God we just said we worshiped? Could it be that, that Monday through Saturday something else has our attention rather than God? Could, could it be that, that we're going through the motions of, of ritualistic religion while at the same time our heart is cold and indifferent to Christ even while you're sitting here this morning, you're coming out of tradition. You're, tr- you're coming out of obligation. We, we live here in the good old Southern Bible Belt. What do you do on Sunday mornings? If you grew up in the Bible Belt, you go to church. But you're coming to church not to worship a holy God, not to, to go deeper in your walk with Him. You're going to, to come here because of obligation? Listen, folks, we've, we've walked through this book of Revelation that, that is the unveiling of the beauty of the Son of God his kingship, his sovereignty, his beauty. And as we've walked through this book, I'm hoping you've come to places where you realize that he alone is to be worshipped. The Godhead Trinity is worthy of worship. As we've seen, the end times played out right in front of our eyes. Maybe, maybe we need a, a test this morning to test our heart. Maybe we need to, well, maybe we just need to test some things to see where our heart really lies. So let's, let's do that. You don't have to Take out a piece of paper. But what I want you to do is mentally, I want you to think about this. So when you want to attend a church, when you, when you want to go to a, a church, what do you expect that church to provide for you, right? Well, let's make a list. Here's some things that someone might say, okay, if, I, if, I, I, if I'm looking for a good church and I'm going to attend a good church, here's some things I expect to see on Sunday morning. I expect to see you know, a worship team that's ready to lead us in worship and maybe has talents like all these folks on the stage a little while ago had. And, and I expect them to be prepared and ready and have their, their A game on. I expect, you know, a sermon that's relevant and, and, and that, 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 that gets me to thinking. I expect to have a, a children's ministry that's alive and vibrant. And I expect to have a, a student ministry where my teenagers can go and they can go on trips and, you know, have a pizza party and have some fun, but also be taught the Word of God. I expect uh, the building to be clean. I expect the bathrooms to be ready. I expect, um, now this, I know this is going to be abstract, but just stick with me. I expect that, that we have some, some good coffee and grits maybe. I don't know who would ever do that, but uh, maybe there's a church out there that can provide what I hear is like the A number one best grits in town, which happens to be right over in our rock cafe. But listen, I, I expect these things. These are the things in my mind that if a, if a church that, that's going to get my attention in my time, I expect these things. Okay. None of those things are bad. Don't hear me saying that. Even when I wrap this thing up, don't hear me saying that any of those things are bad. I'm thankful for our children's ministry, student ministry. I'm thankful for our folks who are in the kitchen that's worked this morning to give you some convenience of some good food. All right, now that's your first list. Second list, second list. What commands does the Bible give for the church? What does the Bible say the church is supposed to be about? Well, you might think of some things like, well, I know that the Bible says somewhere that, that the church is to love one another, right? That, that this is to be a fellowship of love, that we are, we are a family joined together by Christ and that we're to love one another, okay? That's one. That's true. Uh, we're, we're to be a church that, that serves those who are poor, maybe widows, orphans. The Bible specifically calls them out. That as a church, we're to help the less fortunate. We are to, to meet needs as we can. Maybe, maybe you read somewhere in the New Testament where it says uh, that, that, that the church is supposed to make disciples, the Great Commission. 
to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that Christ has commanded. Absolutely, that is something the church has been commanded to do. We're, we're called to bear one another's burdens. That we're to walk together in unity. So now we have one list over here of, of what the church is commanded to do by Scripture, and we have another list over here of what's expected of the church. Let me ask you a hard question. Let me ask you a hard question. What would upset you more? What would upset you more if the, if the first list, of all the things over here on the first list, if all of that was eliminated, no children's ministry, no grits, no coffee, no vibrant worship team, all of that went away. We're out in a tent somewhere. We have no air conditioning. We have no comfortable chairs. We're sitting in the old metal folding chairs, but, but we're gathered together. If, if all the, the, the conveniences went away, would that make you more upset, or would you be more upset that the church is not obeying the clear commands of Scripture? Now, which one upsets you more? If, if the fact that we don't have grits and coffee, does that upset you more? Or would it upset you more that the, the, the church itself is not being obedient to the commands that Christ has given? Because here's what I'm thinking. We have, we have brothers and sisters all over the planet that are, that are worshiping together in little, little apartments in China. In, in jungles of all over the place. And they have no building, they have no technology, they have no children's ministry, they have, they have no student ministry, they have none of that. It's just a group of people who love Jesus coming together and all the other stuff is gone. But whatever makes you most upset, whatever bothers you the most, may indicate that your heart is being given to something less than God. If all those things on the first lift, if those things were to go away, if that upsets you more, those things aren't bad. But if those things become the central focus, well, I want to make sure I have a, the right worship team. I want to make sure I have the right ministries. I want to make sure that all my needs are met. You know, there's a word for that. And I think over the last 30, 40 years in church ministry, I'm afraid the church has made more consumers than we have disciples. And that keeps me up at night. As long as we have the flashiest, best stuff, people will come. But if you let any of that go away, they say they love Jesus, but maybe they love the comfort more. So the reason I give you this test this morning is to get down to the real point, and that is, what are you truly worshiping? What, are you, what truly has your heart? Does something less than? Or is it, is, it, is it God, the creator of the universe? He's inviting people in the last part of this book to say, worship God. Look at verse 10. So the first invitation is trust and obey God. The second one is to worship God. The third invitation is proclaim the truth. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now what's interesting about this is if you go back in the Old Testament to another prophet, a prophet named Daniel. We have a book there, the book of Daniel. You know the stories of Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. And we have those great stories we learned as kids. But the second half of the book of Daniel is prophecy. In other words, God gives Daniel visions about what the future looks like. And, and he's told Daniel to write these things down. But what's interesting is in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, he tells Daniel, now Daniel, write these things down, but I need you to seal them up. In other words, don't share it. And in that verse, he says, don't share it until the end. Then we get to the gospel, or we get to the revelation of John, or the revelation to John. And you know what we've seen in this book over and over again? We've seen God say to John, John, make sure you proclaim this message. The exact opposite of what he told Daniel. Now, why is that? Well, the reason that John is told to not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book 
He says right here, for the time is near. The reason that Daniel was told to seal up the prophecy and John is told to tell everyone is because in John's day and in our day, we are closer than we've ever been to the return of Christ. The time is near. He says that the time, this third invitation, we must proclaim the truth. Remember, the book of Revelation, God gives the revelation to Jesus. Jesus gives the revelation to an angel. The angel then gives the revelation to John. John is commanded to write it down and to share it. And John writes it down, and here we are, 2,000 plus years later, reading what John wrote down. We are meant to proclaim this message. We are meant to proclaim the truth. We are called to not, well, to not compromise it, to not water it down, but to simply share the truth. Notice this next verse, verse 11 gave me all kinds of trouble. It says, let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What in the world is John talking about? Let those who are evil just continue to be evil? That seems kind of contradictory to the other things we read in the New Testament, but here's what's happening. The angel conveying this to John, what he's saying to John, and what he's saying to us is there's going to come a time where those who are evil are going to continue to do evil, and they will not have an opportunity to change. There's going to come a time where God's grace is no longer going to be available. There's going to come a time where that door is going to close. We're not there yet, thank God, but there is a day coming where if someone is evil, they will continue to be evil. There will be no second chances. There will be no opportunity. He says here that in the context of Jesus coming again, that in the context of that coming, that those who are filthy will remain to be filthy. Those who hate God will continue to hate God. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about that place of torment that those who reject Christ will go to. Do remember, you remember me telling you that in that place, those folks who are in that place even now in darkness, they're not in love with Jesus. It's not as though all of a sudden when they're separated from God, all they want is to get back with God. No, in that place, they still hate. They still despise the things of God. And their hatred has even grown while they've been there. This angel says there will be a time where there will be no turning back. Fortunately, today, in this moment, there is an opportunity for your life to be changed. The fourth invitation starts in verse 12. This fourth invitation is to fulfill the will of God. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. As we've looked at this book, I've told you many times, I hope what gets your attention is just how intimately God is aware of your heart. When we've looked through this book, we've seen God work in ways where he absolutely knows the condition of the hearts of the people that are still yet in the future. This, this what we've been looking at is still yet to come in the future. Probably not too far off in my opinion, but nonetheless, God knows every aspect of their heart. There's nothing you're hiding from him. So this idea is, in, in, this, in this fourth invitation, is that we are to do the will of God, and he says, behold, I am coming soon, and I am going to repay you. I am going to, see that word recompense, means wages. So here we have the beauty of the parable of the talents that Jesus taught when he was in his earthly ministry. He taught this parable to his disciples. He says, okay, imagine a master of a house, wealthy man. He has lots of money, lots of resources. He calls in three of his servants, and he says to these three servants, look, I'm going to go away, and while I'm away, I'm going to give you a portion of my wealth, and I want you to take that as a stewardship, and I want you to multiply that while I'm gone. Three servants. He gives each servant a different amount of money. The master leaves, and he's gone for a long time. The master all of a sudden comes back one day, and it's in that text, the, the surprise of the master coming back home. 
Well, one of the three were su- was surprised. So the master comes back. He calls these three servants into his, his office. And he looks at them and says, okay, I gave you X amount of money. What did you do while I was gone? And the first servant says, hey, I took your money and I doubled it. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been so faithful over this stewardship. Come over here. I've got even more work for you to do. Good job. Second guy, same thing, doubles the amount of money. The master looks at him and says, well done. You're a faithful servant. Come over here. I've got some work for you to do. I'm going to give you even more responsibility in my kingdom. Third guy, his knees are knocking together because he didn't do anything while the master was away. He took what was given to him and buried it. And he says to the master, hey, here's what you gave me. I'm just giving it back to you. And the master says, well, couldn't you have at least invested it somewhere and got me a little bit of interest return? Because remember, you didn't own it. I own it. And I meant for you to multiply it, but you did nothing. And we find out in that parable that that servant despised the master. And that's why he didn't do anything while the master was gone. So likewise here, at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I'm coming back and I'm going to bring my wages with me. What you've been doing in your life, what you've been doing with what I've given you, is going to earn a wage for you and I have them. And when I come back, just like the master in that parable, he's going to line us up and he's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? Christians, I want you to hear me well here. Disciples of Jesus, I want you to hear me very clearly here. Every sermon that you've ever heard, every Sunday school class lesson, every small group lesson you've been in, every time you've heard a song come across K-Love, a worship song, and you sung it out loud, and, and God gave you that moment of worship, all these moments is a stewardship that God has been giving you. From the moment you became born again to the moment you leave this planet, that entire span of your life is a stewardship. And in that stewardship, God has been investing things in you. He's given you a Bible. He's given you a country where you have the freedom to tell other people about what you believe. You, you, you've been given a church where you're hearing the gospel proclaimed. You've given, been given relationships with other people. You have coworkers who are lost. You have all these things that Jesus has given you. And, and I want you to understand that when Jesus returns, there will be a day when as a disciple of his, you will stand before your master and your master's going to say to you, what did you do with what I gave you? What will your answer be on that day? Did you live your life for something greater than yourself, the master, or did you simply just waste everything that was put in your hands? A coworker that's far from Christ, have you, have you talked to that coworker about what you believe? You already have the relationship. You already have the friendship. It's already there. All you need to do is take the next step and bring Jesus up in the conversation. Why will you not do that? Well, maybe something else has your heart. Maybe popularity is more important. Maybe being accepted by your peers. And you know that if you start naming Jesus, not sure I'll be accepted. Maybe that's more important. Fulfill the will of God. His return is imminent. Look at the next invitation, the fifth one. Receive. Receive the invitation and then share the invitation. Look at verse 16. He says, I, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. That is a very strange phrase right there. Look at that closely. 
it speaks to the character, the attribute of who Christ is. Notice this. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David. A root speaks to the beginning of David. The descendant speaks to something that came after David. How could Jesus be both? How could Jesus be the root of David and his family? In other words, how could, how could David, his existence be based off of Jesus, and then at the same time, Jesus be his descendant? Well, there's an easy answer. Jesus doesn't have a beginning. He's eternal. He is there's never been a beginning point for Jesus. The Bible says that, that Christ was involved in the creation of the world. Colossians chapter 1 says that all things were created through him, by him, for him, and he holds all things together. So, so Jesus doesn't start in Bethlehem. Jesus' existence didn't begin with Mary and Joseph. Jesus is eternal. And so therefore, Jesus predates David, well, for eternity. But then... This miraculous thing happens in Bethlehem where, where a, a young teenage girl who is a virgin gives birth to a son named Jesus. And so then he is in the line of David. He is a descendant of David, yet he predated David. Isn't that incredible? He says, look at this. He says, he says verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears says, hears say, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. We have this invitation that we are meant to receive. That all 66 books of the Bible is meant for you to receive an invitation. I have done my best over these last many weeks to deliver to you the invitation. But it's still up to you to respond to it. Notice here he says, let the spirit and the bride say, Come. The church, the bride, we know the church to be the bride. What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to go into a community and say, come. Not come to church. Okay, make sure, we, make sure we're clear on this. Don't, don't come to our building. By all means, come. We'd love to have you. But what we're talking about is come to, to a saving relationship with Christ. That is our message. Whether you ever step foot in this building or not, that's, that's not, that's not our goal as, a, as an end goal. We'd love to have you. We'd love to have you as part of our family. But listen, our end goal as a church, and let's make sure we're clear on this, is to see their life change through Christ, forgiven and set free. That is our mission. Whether they ever step foot on this campus or not, we're okay. Okay? Are you okay with that? Are you, are you okay? I'm, 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 I'm looking at you here and I'm wondering if we're okay here. Let me say this again. Our mission as a church is the Great Commission that people hear and respond to the gospel. We want them to be part of our church. We love them a part of our family. But if they choose otherwise, if they go to another church, we're okay with that, right? Amen. Thank you. I was beginning to wonder there because Lord knows I've talked about it enough. We're okay because we're building the kingdom, not necessarily Hyde Park. If Hyde Park grows as a result, great. I'm good with that. But I'm also okay that if we're doing what God has called us to do and God shrinks us, I'm okay with that too because if we're doing what God has called us to do, we leave the results up to him, okay? So when we talk about the invitation, receive and share. Notice this, the spirit and the bride say come. The bride, the church says come, put your faith in Jesus. The spirit has that work of drawing people to salvation. And notice this, he says, and let the ones who hears say come. So those who have heard and responded, let them go back out and tell others to come. That, that's your job as a follower of Jesus, to tell others about the life you found in him. It's not just my job. It's not just Pastor Paul's job. It's your job. That's what you're called to. And that's what Jesus is going to ask you about 
in that stewardship. So this fifth invitation is to both receive and share that invitation. Listen, if you are thirsty, I know where you can find water, living water. If you're hungry, I know where you can find the bread of life. If you're hurting, I found a comforter. If you are broken, I know a healer. If you feel unlovable, I know one who loves you enough who died for you. If you've come to the end of your rope, I know one who reaches out his hand. If you are shackled by chains of addiction, guilt, shame, the past, or depression, I know the one who has the key and who can set you free. His name is Jesus. He's not a fable. He's not some story that a bunch of guys made up. He is, he is the king. He is the one who's coming again. He is the one you will bow a knee to. He is the one who brings his wages with him. He is the king, and there is no salvation found in no other. You will not find him in Buddha. You will not find him in Muhammad. You will not find him in atheism. You will not find your purpose and your meaning in life outside of Jesus Christ the righteous, period. Amen. There is no life to be found anywhere else except in him. Sixth invitation, verse 18. We're almost there. Keep hanging on here. We're almost done. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life. Now, this is, again, a really, really unusual statement. We only find a statement similar to this all the way back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy as Moses is, is preaching to the nation of Israel as he's getting ready to pass off the scene. But here we see where God says to us, be careful with how you handle his word. Specifically, he's saying the book of Revelation. He's not talking about the whole canon of Scripture here. He's talking specifically about the book of Revelation. Now, isn't it interesting? Now, for those of you who've read commentaries or other books, isn't it interesting that the very book in the Bible, and I would, I would argue that the book of Revelation has more books written about it that are as far from what God actually said as any other book of the Bible. There is more heresy and more false teaching that flow out of the book of Revelation than any other book in the Bible. I would argue that. But isn't it interesting, the very book that has all of this false teaching that flows out of it by human beings who think they're right has the one warning in it that says, don't do that. So if you are a teacher, a communicator of God's Word, if you have a role in this church or another church and you're teaching God's Word, it doesn't matter if you're teaching it to children, teenagers, or adults. You need to hear me very clearly on this. Don't you ever stand in front of a group of people and you say to them, this is what God says, and God didn't say that. It is a dangerous thing. It is a foolhardy thing. If you stand before a group of people and you say, thus says the word of God, you better make doggone sure that you're not putting words in the mouth of God that he never said. And we've got churches all over the country this morning with great big ministries and great big podcasts and great big video ministries, and I listen to them, and I am shuddering in my boots because they're saying that God said something that God never said. All right, for those of you who are teaching, that's your warning. Now, for all of us who are out there trying to share the gospel and tell other people about what we believe, you better make sure that what you're saying is what God actually has said. It's a dangerous thing to put words in the mouth of God. This final invitation is a warning, and what he says is we need to heed the warning. Listen, he says, he says that uh, verse, um, if you look at verse 19, the latter part of 19, he says, if anyone takes away from the words of this book, the prophecy, I'll take away his share in the tree of life. This is a serious thing. Not that you lose your salvation, but if you're teaching false teaching, then that indicates where your heart is. Don't change it. Don't water it down. Don't make it fit our culture. And then finally, the final 
invitation. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Jesus, in the final words that Jesus says to John. So uh, listen, of all the things that Jesus could have said right here, right? Jesus, Jesus could have said all kinds of things. This is the last book, the last verse of the entire canon of Scripture. John has received all of these visions. Jesus has had an ongoing dialogue with John and the angel. And we get to the last moment for Jesus to say something, to have it written down, inspired and written down for all of the church to see for thousands of years to come. And what does Jesus say here? He says, make sure you write this down. I am coming soon. And those naysayers who have that I've met out here at the food pantry, those naysayers that have come by the church will say, well, yeah, we've heard that one before. Man, we've been hearing that for years. I've been hearing preachers say for years, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And you know what I, what I think of in that moment? That, that that person's no different than the people standing on the ship of the Titanic while the bottom of that ship is flooding. They're standing on the top listening to beautiful music going, it's not going to sink. We're going to be fine. Nothing's going to happen to me. Jesus says, I am coming soon. If Jesus being God cannot lie, if Jesus, if Jesus being God in the flesh, Jesus being the one who died at the hands of angry sinners, that same Jesus who resurrected, if he chooses in the last words of the canon of Scripture to say to you, surely I am coming soon, then Jesus is one of three things. Either Jesus is a straight-up liar, and he was lying in that moment, and he lied his whole life. Or number two, Jesus is an absolute lunatic. He's crazy. He's insane. Or Jesus is Lord, and he's coming back. That's a C.S. Lewis argument. So this morning, where you sit, you're believing one of those three. Either you're believing everything's going to be fine, or you're believing that Jesus can't be trusted, or you believe that he's Lord. And really, that comes down to two groups of people in this room and everyone watching online. The seventh, the seventh invitation is to anticipate his return. Listen to how John responds to Jesus' last words to him. John prays a prayer. He says, amen. That word amen being I agree or let it be done. He says, let it be done. Come, Lord Jesus. Does that make you nervous? We just sung a song about Lord Jesus come. Does that make you nervous? Or do you just kind of explain it away as though it's some kind of fable and you just get on with your life? But if you'll pause for just a moment and realize that the Son of God is the one who said this to you, and John is saying because John spent hours with the King, spent hours with the Savior, was there when he died on the cross. John, a man at 90 years old plus, suffering, says, Come, Lord Jesus. Verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So what do we do until he comes? What, that verse 21 and all that simplicity, what do we do in this moment called the church age between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, which is still yet to happen? What do we do? Well, it's right there in one single word. It's called grace. We receive his grace. We distribute his grace. We live in his grace. We, we lead into that grace. We know that we don't deserve anything. We know that everything that we have is by the grace of God. So we live in the grace of God. And there he says, the grace of the Lord be with us all. Because the only thing that's going to get us through this life, this broken world, is the grace of an almighty king who loves us unconditionally. That's it. That's it.
So, you're either standing on the deck of the Titanic saying all is well, or you're looking at Jesus going, he's not sufficient. Either way, the result is the same. Either way, whichever way you go here, either, either you, you jump into the lifeboat or you reject the only way to be saved. There's only two groups of people, and both of those groups of people will meet their end. Those to ever-loving ever ever righteousness and grace in the presence of God, and those separated from God forever. It comes down to two groups of people coming down to a choice you make. You either explain it away, nothing's ever going to happen to me, or you put your faith in a king who's able to save and forgive you. I'm always amazed that the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God's word, the beauty of the creator that's revealed within its pages, we take that so, I don't know, flippantly anymore. I mean, as we've walked through the book of Revelation, we've seen God reveal his justice, his power. We've seen it. I've, I've tried to communicate it. Quite frankly, we've just kind of skipped over the top of it. I, I don't feel like I've ever hit the depths of it. But you've got to understand that we just walk by this so flippantly. It's like we've inherited the Biltmore Estate. I know many of you have been to the Biltmore. We've inherited the Biltmore Estate, but rather than go out and ex- explore all that it has, we keep ourselves locked in a broom closet thinking that's all there is. That we're not mining the depths of God's love and His grace because we've gotten satisfied with something less than. So this morning, all of these invitations are for you and hoping that you will respond to the invitation that God is giving you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.